Yes. Good morning. morning. You would turn your Bible to second. Nope. Book of (laughs) the book of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Is Jose and Vinny here this morning? Ah. Happy anniversary. Fifty years of marriage. And you know, theirs is a love story, and I've got to tell this little anecdote. It's the most recent anecdote of many. A couple of weeks ago, I was speaking to Vinny. You know, she walks with the Lord, has a strong prayer life, sensitive to the Holy Spirit, and she said, Pastor, I haven't felt well. And I've yelled at Jose a couple of times this week. All of a sudden, Jose got on the phone and said, She ain't lying, Pastor. (laughs) But we love Jose and Vinny. And uh, we're so grateful for you. Thank you for being a model and example to all of us for what a loving marriage looks like. And we hope for 50 more. Yeah. Well, let's look in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Ephesians 1, verses 1 and 2 this morning. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. To the saints who are in Ephesus... And are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the gift of corporate worship. That we can sing your gospel word in song. That we can pray together. Freely, but also with great desire because of our redemption. And we thank you for the gift of the the word of God, the apostolic word. We begin our study in Ephesians. I ask that grace would come to us, immeasurable grace and peace from you, Father, and our elder brother, the Lord Jesus Christ, And by your spirit, we pray for these next months that you would do just that. That the word of God would be a means of grace and peace to us all. Give us ears to hear. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. At the 350th celebration of the Westminster Confession of Faith at Westminster Abbey in London... Scottish pastor Eric Alexander spoke about the Apostle Paul and the early Christians, the early church. Despite persecutions, great persecutions and trials, these believers devoted themselves to the building up of the local church. Their knowledge of God, of what he was doing in the world compelled them to this work. And it instilled in them a certainty into their fragile, weak faith that describes us all in many ways. Now, the same could be said of the the builders in Nehemiah's day. They worked so hard on the city of Jerusalem when others had given up that city for lost. And the reason they did that is because they knew that it was part 
of God's unfailing plan to save the nations. Alexander added, were we more heavenly minded in our living, it would do the same for us. And then he went on to ask a series of sobering questions that should challenge us all. What is the really important thing that is happening in the world in our generation? Where are the really significant events taking place? Now, how would you answer that question? How would we answer that question? And I think we need to hear this in an election year. Where are the really important things, most significant things happening in our world? And here's what he said. The most significant thing happening in history is the calling, redeeming, and perfecting of the people of God. God is building the church of Jesus Christ. The rest of history is simply a stage God erects for that purpose. History's great climax comes when God brings down the curtain on this bankrupt world and the Lord Jesus Christ arrives in his infinite glory. The rest of history is simply the scaffolding for the real work. Alexander finished by saying that the last time he had been to London and to Westminster Abbey, it was under renovation and it was covered with scaffolding. All right? And he says one could not see its true beauty, but one was aware that something of great significance was happening behind the scaffolding. Something of majestic beauty was to be revealed. There will come a day when God will pull down the scaffolding of world history. Do you know what he will be pointing to when he says, To the whole creation, there is my masterpiece. To the church of Jesus Christ. Isn't that a good word? The term church occurs nine times in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Not to mention the several metaphors and expressions that refer to the church. Now there's no book of the Bible. There's no letter, no epistle more centered on the church than Ephesians. Ephesians contains... You could say scripture's mountain peak truth on what God is doing to restore creation. What he is doing in his cosmic renewal and the critical role that the church plays in this purpose. The church has a vital, the vital role in God's purpose to make all things new. Now, it was written at the same time as another church-centered letter, Colossians, somewhere between 60 and 62 A.D., all right? In fact, some 35 verses are virtually the same between Colossians and Ephesians, about a quarter of the book. But there are different emphases in the two letters. 
Whereas Colossians emphasizes the Christ of the church, Paul's letter to the Ephesians emphasizes the church of the Christ. And that brings us to the very opening of this letter. We see the author of Ephesians. Notice in the first part of verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Now we saw in our study of Galatians, and in particular Galatians 2, that Peter, James, and John, that intimate three disciples of our Lord Jesus Christ, gave the Apostle Paul the public right hand of fellowship, validating and affirming his his calling, that he indeed was an apostle. Now, these three did not establish Paul's authority. They recognized it. Now, it's important to understand that the apostles were the patriarchs of the people of God in the New Testament. They are the patriarchs of the church. And as the office of the founding of the church, all right, it was unsuited for continuation. The office of apostle does not continue in church history. It was the foundation of the church, as we'll see in Ephesians chapter 2. But the office survives in the apostolic word. And that's important for us to recognize. The office of apostle survives in the apostolic word. Suffice to say, the church of all ages, 2,000 years of church history now, is bound by that apostolic witness and authority. This witness is the church's foundation. So Paul is saying, in other words, at the very beginning... He has the right to speak authoritatively. And we, the people of God, have a responsibility to listen and to respond in the obedience of faith. And he's going to say some tough words. There will be some doctrines in the first three chapters that might have a chasing an effect on your functional theology. And the degree to which you submit to what he says is the degree to which you're actually under the authority of the apostolic witness. So he's establishing his credentials at the very beginning. And remember, none of us have a glorified theology. None of our theology and doctrine is fully sanctified yet. All of our functional theology in some way falls short of the glory of God. There are too many Christians who say, well, this is what I believe, and I'm not open to any correction. Well, you're not open to the apostolic witness then, because our beliefs are always subject to growth and maturity and conformity to the mind of Christ. And so he he begins his letter... By reminding us that what he has to say has all authority. 
And if we don't respond to that authority, what we're essentially saying is my experience is my authority. And so he begins us up front reminding us that he speaks in words not taught by human wisdom. Indeed, as he says here, his wisdom, his office is by the will of God. Which is quite remarkable given the fact that he was the first and most notorious persecutor of Christ's church. He was standing there when the first recorded martyr, Stephen, was put to death. And that's why he will say elsewhere that he is the chief of sinners. And in Ephesians 3, he's less than the least of all God's people. And yet this reminds us where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. There is no sin that you can commit that's beyond the grace of God. The Apostle Paul is a case in point. So at the very beginning, we see the author of Ephesians. In the second part of verse 1, we see the audience of Ephesians. Notice in the second part of verse 1. To the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Now, this, this one line is loaded, all right? It, it, it contains vital descriptions of every believer. Now, why is this important? Let me just begin by saying this. He is beginning his letter by reminding us of where identity is. What is your identity? It's what makes you significant. It's behind your importance. It's what gives you worth. And everybody has an identity. And the me I see is the me I'll be. He's reminding us up front what every believer's significance is. What every believer's identity is. And it's the same for every believer. We tend to develop identity amnesia. And when you develop identity amnesia, you allow the world to determine your worth. That's a bad deal. It reminds me of the the true story of two cows standing out in the pasture. One cow says to the other, as a, as a milk truck drives by, that on the side of that milk truck, standardized, pasteurized, homogenized, vitamin A and vitamin D added. The one cow looked at the other and cow says, makes you feel inadequate, doesn't it? <laughs> What's well, a bad deal if you find your identity outside of our creator, redeemer? So Paul is beginning his letter here By reminding us where our worth and significance resides. All right? And so this description here is what Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones describes as the irreducible minimum of what constitutes a Christian. The irreducible minimum. The first thing we see here, Christians are saints. To the saints. 
Now, let me just say as a side here, notice it's plural. Every time the word saints is used in the Old, uh, New Testament, it's in the plural. The assumption is we're doing life, we're walking the Christian life together. It's a corporate endeavor. But this word here in Ephesians 1 is massively misunderstood by the culture. The culture would call someone a saint who, who just is uniquely noble. Someone who really does amazing things or someone who perhaps endures a lot of difficulty. So uh, that woman is a saint for, for living with that man. Well, well, that's not the way Paul uses this term. And then... The way he uses this term is also different than the way the Roman Catholic Church uses this term. In the Roman Catholic Church, a, a, a saint is a uniquely holy person who's exalted to be a saint by ecclesiastical procedure. And so someone nominates another person for the position, and then there's a trial held in which one advocate appeals to the merits and the worth of the one being nominated. Now, that one being nominated also supposedly has performed at least one miracle in his or her life. And then there's another advocate called the devil's advocate. And the devil's advocate is intended to, to poke holes in the advocate's argument, all right? And, and, but once that person's worthiness is sufficiently established, he or she is deemed a saint. That is not biblical. That is not how the Apostle Paul uses this term. It's not something we do. It's something God declares apart from any human merit. Paul is saying at the very beginning of this letter, every Christian, every believer is declared by God a saint. This person is set apart, in other words, is definitively declared as holy, regardless of their performance regardless of their character, declared as holy because, as we'll see in just a few minutes, this person has been united to the Holy One, the Lord Jesus Christ. So Christ's holiness is imputed to this believer so that when God sees us, He sees the holiness of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what it means to be a saint. Now, having said that, when a person is declared holy, God proves that by working holiness in us. It begins to have a character-forming, transforming effect. You cannot separate justification or declarative sanctification from 
progressive sanctification. That brings us to the second description here. He says, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful, and are faithful. Now, this is an adjective, faithful. And it can mean two things, and I think Paul intends to communicate two things. First of all, it means to have faith. He's speaking about those who have faith. And then he's describing those who out of that faith are faithful. They're obedient. Now, regard to having faith, there's three aspects to saving faith. There was a movement in the mid-20th century that taught that faith was merely intellectual, merely academic. But that's not the kind of faith that's described in the New Testament. Now, first of all, it does start with the intellectual. So saving faith, first of all, begins with comprehension. I must comprehend something. It's not just faith in faith. You know, the whole pluralistic idea of acceptance with God, it's not faith in faith, it's faith in an object. It's faith in a person. Saving faith requires comprehension that God is holy, God is righteous, and that He is good and right to judge sin. And that I am a sinner and I deserve judgment. But God in His grace, God in His wisdom, has devised a plan where He can be both just and the justifier. He can maintain who He is as righteous and just and still save sinners like us. By sending His Son as our substitute. And all that God required of humanity is fulfilled in this one person. He obeys where we don't. He worships where we don't. He loves where we don't. He fulfills all righteousness. And then, in this remarkable act of condescension and humility, He goes to the cross and and our sin, our wickedness, our iniquity, our transgression is imputed to Him. He doesn't become a sinner on the cross, but he is declared a sinner. And God's just judgment falls, his wrath falls on this one who's declared a sinner for us. And then he's raised from the grave that we might have the forgiveness of sins, that we might be declared righteous and holy in his sight. That's what a saint That's what a Christian believes. We comprehend that. The second part of saving faith, though, is not just comprehension. It's conviction that what I comprehend is true. Conviction to the deepest part of my being, my spirit, my soul, my heart, my affections, that what God has done for me in Jesus Christ is true. And it's the most important reality in the history of the world. And out of that conviction comes utter commitment. I commit my life to this Christ. And out of that commitment comes the life of faithfulness. You see, so to those who are faithful in Christ Jesus, faithful in the sense that I believe what God has done for me in Jesus is true, and now I'm going to commit my life to Him. 
But recognize this faithfulness comes in the context of the local church. Paul is writing to a church. Now, there are people who are providentially hindered from attending the local church. We recognize that. We pray for them. We seek to serve them. But in the norm, in the main, the Christian life is lived out in the context of the local church. That's how faithfulness is demonstrated. In fact, John would say in his epistle, that's how you prove that you've been born again, that you love the brothers, you love the sisters, who are the brothers of the sisters, the ones in the local assembly that God has called you, you to. The third description, besides the fact that we are saints and we are faithful, is this language that Christians are in Christ Jesus. Notice, faithful in Christ Jesus. This is the key thought of Ephesians. We will never leave this thought. Life in Christ Jesus. In fact, it's Paul's favorite way to describe a Christian. He describes a Christian as someone who is in Christ. Theologians call it union with Christ. It's vital language. Now, what does it mean? Let me describe it this way. We recognize that Adam, our federal head, represented us in the garden, correct? And so we are born sinners, sinners by birth, Sinners by choice when we enter, when we are conceived in our mother's womb, all right? And so Adam is our head. But in Christ, our character, in the Adam story, think of it as a, as a story, a, a narrative, all right? A drama. Our character in the Adam story has been killed off, and we have been written into a different script as a completely different character in Christ. That's what it means. We have a different character and a different script in Christ. God has dealt with believers, every believer, by dealing with Jesus as our substitute. And so Jesus... His death, his life, his death, his resurrection are the place where God took hold of human nature to save it and dealt with sin decisively. In Christ, that's the place. In other words, let me use this language that I've used before, but it's true, but it may be outside of anything you've ever thought about before. God saved Jesus. He didn't save him from his sins. He saved us, saved him from our sins. He, Jesus took the wrath. He died in our place and God raised him from the grave. God saved Jesus. That's what the resurrection is, a salvation. And salvation now for us is being put in Christ. Our refuge is in him. That's what it means to be in Christ. He is the saved one. He is the righteous one. We are vindicated in Christ. 
And all that's true of us was true of him first. That's why we're going to see next week. Praise be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who, who has blessed us in the heavenly places with every spiritual blessing in Christ. That we're going to see this phrase, in Christ, or its equivalent, nine times in verses 3 to 23. For the rest of this chapter, we're going to see that phrase nine times. Get this, it's used 164 times in the Apostle Paul's writings. So Paul wrote 13 letters, and he uses that phrase, in Christ or its equivalent, 164 times. We better understand what it means. And so, they were saints, they were faithful in Christ Jesus, but notice, I skipped over a part. They were located in Ephesus. They were in Ephesus. Now, most scholars today believe this was a circular letter. So it was originally written to the church in Ephesus, but it was intended to be distributed throughout Asia Minor, called a circular letter, which means this wasn't just for this particular church. This is for every local church. We could put in here to the saints who are in Fisherville. Now, when you know the history of Ephesus, you recognize how great a miracle it is that there was a thriving church there. An utter miracle. Ephesus was the fourth or fifth largest city in the world in that day. There's just estimates, but somewhere between 250,000 and 350,000 people lived in Ephesus. Sounds a lot like the United States, or a a big city in the United States. Uh, it, It took pride, for instance, in having the largest of all Greek open air theaters. Theater was very important to the Ephesians and the people of the area. It also had a a stadium that would hold 25,000 people for chariot races and animal fighting and other kinds of games. And so sports and entertainment were very important in the city of Ephesus. But the sheer numbers when the Apostle Paul brought that gospel into Ephesus would at the natural level have been very overwhelming to be the fourth or fifth largest city in the world. This week I read of a missionary who was called to Calcutta, India. And he, as he was flying over the city and he saw the mass, the masses of people, He just got overwhelmed. And and the only thing that encouraged him to stay was that he believed that God had preceded him there in Calcutta. And and that's Paul's sense for sure. But there was another challenge. The challenge was Rome. Rome itself. In fact, if you go there today, there's the remnants of a large statue to the 
Emperor Trajan. Now, Trajan came after Paul, but it gives you an idea of the pressure of the Roman Empire on Christians. You see, in the Roman Empire, you could worship anything or anybody you wanted as long as you gave your first devotion to the emperor. And in Paul's day, it was Nero. And so you could, you could bow the knee to any god, and there were some 50 god or goddesses in Ephesus. And you could bow your knee as long as the emperor was your highest devotion. And so imagine a Christian in that area who can no longer bow the knee to Caesar, to Nero at that time. It would have been very difficult to be a Christian in that day. But it wasn't the only challenge. Ephesus rivaled Corinth. Now, just to get you, uh, give you an idea how corrupt Corinth was, he wrote Romans from Corinth. And if you want to read Romans 1, uh, where he speaks about the depravity of a culture given over, he's writing that, looking out his window at Corinth. All right? Now, Ephesus rivaled Corinth with regard to moral depravity. People would come from all over the region and even the world to see one of the seven wonders of the world at that day was the temple to Artemis or Diana. Those are used synonymously, Artemis or Diana. And, and, and to worship Artemis would also require you to visit the sacred prostitutes who would give their service for Diana that were offered to those as a kind of consummation of worship to Diana. That's the kind of city Ephesus was. And to this city, Paul came to preach. He came briefly at the end of his second missionary journey, and he left Aquila and Priscilla there, kind of nurture the ground. But he came back for three years, almost three years, on his third missionary journey. And when he came, massive pain, massive pushback. All the idols of the culture got exposed. The, the Jews turned hostile towards him. And, and, and so then Paul just kind of turned to the Gentiles and, and revival broke out. And this great church was birthed in Ephesus because God the Spirit came to bear with the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ through the ministry of the Apostle Paul and through the converts, the massive amount of converts who came under the sway of the gospel through his preaching. In fact, these converts built this massive bonfire and they burned all their books of magic, books worth a fortune, and it cost the economy, especially the worship of Diana. But it wasn't easy. Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians, I fought with beasts at Ephesus. He's not talking about literal animals. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 16, he says, A great and effective door opened for me in Ephesus, but there were many adversaries. There's always spiritual warfare when God's people do what God's called them to do. By the way, that's why Ephesians ends 
with a treatise on spiritual warfare. And so in spite of the difficulty, in spite of the warfare, his disciples, his new converts, fanned out from there to evangelize the entire region. They planted churches in Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira. Are you familiar with those, those churches? Revelation 2 and 3, right? All of these churches were formed through the faithful evangelistic missional ministry, the church at Ephesus. Laodicea, Colossae, and Hierapolis. In fact, let me just say as a side, this is the only church that received two different canonical letters from two different apostles. Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, and then he writes to 1 Timothy. He writes to Timothy, who's serving in Ephesus, the first pastoral epistle. And then the apostle John writes to Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2. Very important church. But these believers who came under the sway of the gospel, these believers who were saints, all right, who were faithful in Christ Jesus, these believers moved through. Indeed, they lived in Ephesus in Christ. They worked. They went to their jobs. They, they, they kept up their houses. They did business and commerce. They interacted with all of their neighbors. They posted on the first century version of social media of the day, all with the perspective of being in Christ. That was their identity. There was nothing political about their identity. They were in Christ. Don Stott says that many of our spiritual troubles, indeed, much of our ineffectiveness as Christians in the West, in the 21st century, stems from a failure to remember that we are citizens of two kingdoms. We tend either to pursue Christ and, and, and withdraw from the world, and, and when you withdraw from the world, you... You know, the world doesn't get the effect of our salt and our light, right? Or we become so preoccupied with the world that we forget that we're also in Christ. And so it's vital that we remember we are the saints in Fisherville in Christ Jesus. Faithful in Christ Jesus. The me I see is the me I'll be. The me I see is the me I'll be. The Ephesians understood that, and it turned the entire region upside down. Well, that brings us to the affirmation of Ephesians. We'll be brief here. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this affirmation here is all the more remarkable when we remember where the Apostle Paul is writing from. He's not writing from a Roman country club. 
He's writing from a Roman jail cell. He's in prison. In fact, it's during this time that he wrote what is known as the prison epistles. Ephesians, Colossians, Philippians, and Philemon. He wrote it during the time that you read about in Acts 28. So as Acts ends, that, that he, Acts ends with him in jail. Now the last word of the book of Acts in Greek is the word unhindered. I think Luke intends that word intentionally. The gospels will go unhindered even if the apostle Paul is in jail. Now I want you to think about this. He's in prison because of political persecution. He's in prison because of religious persecution. But instead of seeing himself as a victim, instead of complaining, he turned this difficult providence into a ministry opportunity that not only benefited Ephesus, it has benefited the church for 2,000 years. Think about the letters we'd be missing if Paul hadn't been put in jail. God can take evil in our culture and turn it on its head. As I've said the whole time, he is no less sovereign today than he's ever been. He's as sovereign today as the day he raised Jesus from the grave. And the reason Paul could do this while in jail, rather than having a pity party, is that he never got over grace. And Paul isn't simply a painting that we look at and wish we could be more like. All right? That's not here. He's a window. He's not a painting. He's a window that we look through to see the extraordinary rescuing grace of the Redeemer. This is what grace can do in a person. And these words, grace and peace, sum up Paul's life and sum up Paul's gospel. The nature of salvation and the nature of the Christian life, the title of our sermon, Peace by Grace. Peace through grace. Peace with God by grace. Peace with our fellow man by grace. Peace in the inner Man, the inner person, peace within by grace. And in a very real sense, this is the table of contents for the entire letter. The word grace occurs 12 times in the book. The word peace occurs 8 times. Peace is the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew word shalom. And the Old Testament anticipates a day of shalom when God vindicates his name by saving his people and destroying their enemies. This is peace that is offered through God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, that word peace is found 91 times in the New Testament, 54 of those times in the Apostle Paul. And so, in chapter 6, verse 15, the good news is termed the gospel of peace. In chapter 2, verse 14, Jesus Christ is our peace. 
because he has made peace by his cross. And then we are called to go and preach peace. He came and preached peace to those who are near and those who are far away. Chapter 2, verse 17. And we are to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Chapter 4, verse 3. Grace, on the other hand, indicates both how and why we are saved. No merit of our own. It's by the immeasurable riches of His grace that we're saved. It is by grace we have been saved through faith, and this not from ourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. And so if we want a very succinct summary of the good news which this letter announces, three words, peace through grace. Peace through grace. That's what's coming in the book of Ephesians. Peace through grace. This word, this document, is a means of peace through grace. And just like Paul's apostolic calling, this peace and grace comes through both the Father and the Son. Notice distinction in the Godhead, but equality. God the Father and God the Son. And so just as this apostolic word is a means of grace and peace, so is the table. We have considered this grace and peace that's coming to us over the next months by this letter. But we also recognize that one of the vital means of grace is the table of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you're visiting with us today, we would love for you to participate with us on a couple of conditions. You've experienced this grace and peace. You've been saved. You've trusted in Jesus Christ alone as your Savior. You've been restored to God. You've been restored to your fellow man. You have the peace of Christ in your heart. You're a baptized believer in Christ, a member in good standing of a local church. If that is you, we, we ask that you would fellowship with us in this table. Let's pray as the Lord prepares us for the table this morning. As we celebrate the fact that because of what God has done for us in Jesus and applied by the Spirit, we are the saints in Fisherville, the faithful in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you, Lord, for your mercy and grace in your Son. Lord, as we approach the table this morning, we recognize that in the rush of life that we might not have thought to consider that there may be unconfessed sin in our hearts this morning. So, Lord, before we even partake, would you reveal by your Spirit any unconfessed sin that we need to repent of. Sin towards you. Sins towards our spouses, our children. Our neighbor. Our brothers and sisters in Christ. Father, we thank you that there is forgiveness in your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that the wrath has already been poured out. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And yet, Lord, when that truth takes hold of our hearts, 
it creates us in us a desire to be faithful. We pray you would show us, Lord, this morning where we're falling short. Father, we are truly sorry. We humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us. Forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.